Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. Uh, there's a denomination of Christians uh, that you may have heard of. They, they exist primarily in Egypt and sort of northern Africa. And it's a denomination of Christians that I greatly respect. And you may know that one of the earliest hubs in the ancient world of Christianity was not just Jerusalem, but the city of Alexandria in Egypt. Uh, you may have heard of the famous library of Alexand- that Alexandria. Um, that was one of the earliest hubs of Christian faith and thinking. And the story goes that St. Mark came to Alexandria after Jesus' death and resurrection and started a church there. And that church would grow out of Egypt into the Horn of Africa, to Ethiopia and Sudan. And sadly, this particular church broke ties Uh, This community of Christians broke ties with the rest of the church over some theological disagreements in the year 451. Um, But uh, it was a growing and thriving church nonetheless until the year 639. And that was the year, of course, that the Muslim conquest of North Africa uh, swept through the region. And uh, we call these Christians now the Coptic Christians. Is that a thing people are familiar with, the Coptic Christians? I, I see hands, very good. And uh, they're, they're still a strong denomination. There's still about 10 million of them uh, in that region in general. Um, and they are a people who, since the 600s, uh, they've lived in these uh, generally Muslim lands, and so persecution has been sort of regular and intense for them. Um, they are Christians who are regularly persecuted. And some of the persecution of this history has been violent, um, but some of it's been political, too. And so it was customary in many Muslim countries to add a, a Christian tax onto um, people who refused to convert uh, to Islam. And so uh, many people did convert under those circumstances, but many Christians, they refused to, but they were taxed so heavily that they became broke. They couldn't pay their tax. And so one of the ways, one of the practices of the day was that if you couldn't pay your taxes, then the Muslim authorities would come in and take their children away from their families. And so in the midst of this unique uh, area of persecution, where children were being taken away from the poorest of Christians, a tradition developed. Um, And what the tradition was is that these Christians began to practice the art of tattooing as a way of marking themselves as Christian. And that seems so odd to us in 20th century America, 21st century America, because, you know, we have not particularly been a friendly people to the art of the ink, as it were. Um, but what they would do is on their right hand, they would get a small, or on the wrist, they get a small cross tattoo right about there. And uh, there's different styles and different ways that this tattoo could be received, but that you would get a cross tattoo there, and that would be your membership into the church. And so to go to church in the old uh, Coptic church, you had to pull up your sleeve and show the tattoo, because they didn't want anyone to come in and sort of break apart their fellowship. They didn't want someone to come in and maybe they're meeting secretly and they said, you know, we're only going to allow tattooed Christians in because, you know, we don't know when someone's going to secretly spy on us during our church service. And even today, there are some Coptic congregations in Egypt where you have to show your tattoo to get in. 
And this practice became so widespread, in fact, that it extended to babies and children. And so children and babies of the Coptic Christians would get the tattoo because the parents thought, if they are taken away into slavery, they will know two things by looking at this tattoo. One, uh, that their parents loved them, and that they had Christian parents who loved them and, and did not give them up willingly. And two, these Christian children would know that they were baptized, and that they are sealed and marked as Christ's own forever. And there was not a way that the enslaved people, they couldn't get rid of that tattoo. It was a permanent mark that they were loved by God, that they were loved and sealed in Jesus Christ's body. You can even go to the Middle East now, I think it's fascinating, uh, and find tattoo parlors that have been open since the 1300s. And uh, these are family businesses that have been giving tattoos out for 700 years. And some of you here in the congregation, you have tattoos. Some of you, I bet, here have secret tattoos. You just haven't shown me yet. You know, you've, you've cleverly hidden them over a number of years. Um, and some of you do not have tattoos. But the human uh, species, we as human beings, have taken to making these permanent, lasting modifications to our bodies uh, since before written history. And today we're going to talk about a very common body modification, that is everyday life for the Jewish people, ancient and modern, and a somewhat taboo topic for readers in the year 2020. Uh, today we're going to talk about circumcision. And we're going to see how a very uh, unique practice of body modification becomes the ancient equivalent of that Coptic Christian tattoo, a symbol of identity and membership in the community of God. So we're going to talk about today. And to, to give you some history, to give you some context, I want to talk about two quick notes uh, to help set the stage here and kind of lower the anxiety, because when the pastor starts talking specifically about circumcision, uh, people start to get anxious. There are children present, my goodness. And so I'm going to talk about two pieces of historical context that's going to help with the conversation. First, I want to note that the act of circumcision, as I said a second ago, it predates written history. So human men have been circumcised since before we started writing it down. That this practice is sort of ancient, it's, it's origins, like we can't figure out when it started. You know, like we can't go back in history and say, I wonder who the first person ever to get their ears pierced was. We, we can't do that because human beings have been piercing their ears for reasons for the longest time. Well, the same is true of ritual circumcision. That circumcision as a practice has gone on for a very, very long time. And the second thing I want to share is not just that it sort of goes back a long way, but it's very widespread. Uh, that it's not just something that the Jewish people have practiced, but it's something that is practiced in a number of cultures. So in Sub-Saharan Africa, the, the practice of circumcision was seen as a, 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 an entry into adulthood for, uh, for young men. Uh, that it was often associated with uh, coming-of-age ceremonies, or it would be a sort of pre-marriage ceremony, that you would undergo a circumcision before getting married. And in fact, we have archaeological evidence of circumcision that places the practice of circumcision in Egypt at the time that Abram was making his sojourn there. We have hard work, of all things, uh, that lets us know that they uh, practiced circumcision amongst the elites. Uh, that the people who had the money and power and the influence of Egyptian society practiced ritual circumcision. Um, and so I'm telling you all this because circumcision uh, is ancient and widely practiced across cultures, 
And I want you to be a little more comfortable understanding the deepness and the significance of the ritual and how widespread it is. Because when we enter Genesis 17 today, we encounter a God who says to Abram, if you're going to take my covenant seriously, let's put an outward expression on an inward belief. You and your whole household are to be circumcised. So let's look at this relationship between God and Abram. And if I were to put a word to it these days, I would maybe say that their interaction uh, was defined by tension. Because on the one hand, God has been making promises to Abram for a long time. You'll be blessed, you'll, your progeny will be blessed, they will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, um, and they will inherit, inherit this region called Canaan, this very verdant land. And these promises have been um, uneven in their fulfillment. Um, because Abram is now 99 years old. And uh, last week we talked about the story, he was 75 years old. Let me rephrase that. He was 85 last, uh, last week. And so we've had some more time pass. Um, and, and a key part of these promises that God has made to a Abram is that Abram is going to have a biological child. And so there are a lot of promises God has fulfilled. He has fulfilled that his friends were going to get blessed, that he is materially blessed. He's one of the most prosperous and powerful men in the region. And yet, this one promise, this one piece of this promise has not been fulfilled. The question of the heir. Um, will Abram have, at age 99, a biological child? Abram does have a son. We talked about that uh, the other week. and We talked about how um, born out of frustration that God hadn't taken his promises and made them happen quick enough, Abram does have one son, but not with his wife, Sarai. They work through a surrogate pregnancy with uh, their servant, Hagar. And so you can, again, you can forgive Abram for getting antsy on this promise because he's been waiting on God to give him a child now for 24 years. Um, what's a promise you've waited 24 years to have come to fruition? I can't think of any. I don't have any that long. So let's uh, not be so hard on Abram. But in today's reading, God gives Abram an update on that particular promise. God says to Abram, I have an update on you from the bargain. You aren't just going to be the father of one nation. You are going to be the father of many nations. That's an update. And this is the first time God says, you're going to be the father of nations, plural. Not only that, or is Abram going to be the father of nations, kings and queens shall be born from him and his wife Sarah. That's new too. That it's not just going to be sort of one uh, sort of monarchy that goes back, but it's going to be vast and massive. That lots of powerful people are going to claim Abram as their father. In fact, these updates are so big, God says, look, even your names are no longer, uh, uh, they don't make sense anymore. Um, so he changes their names. No longer are they Abram and Sarai. Their names are now Abraham and Sarah. And side note, thank goodness, because it has been so hard to call him Abram and Sarai this entire time. We're all used to calling him Abraham and Sarah, but it's not just a change of name here uh, for the sake of marking time. His names mean things. Abram, his name means exalted father, but Abraham, his new name means the father of many nations. The father of multitudes is what it means. And Sarai, right, the name Sarai, it means princess. 
but then you put the new suffix on there in Hebrew, Sarah, and it just doesn't mean princess. It means my princess. That God is saying to Sarah, you in particular, Sarah, are my princess, and through you will the next generations come. Powerful stuff, these new names. These new names, they represent a bigger and brighter future. And it, these updates, again, that God gives to Abram on his promises, um, he's offering not just to sort of work with Abram to fulfill these promises, but he's now willing to work with every single one of those multitudes of children that number as the stars in the sky. God says, the relationship that I have with you, Abram, I'm going to extend it to every single one of your descendants. What does God say? God says to Abram, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to do what? To be God to you and your offspring after you. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. Every um, relationship, every moment of trust, every blessing that comes between uh, God and Abram's relationship, now Abraham's relationship, God says, I want to have that relationship with every single one of your descendants. And then he says this, he concludes by saying, I will give you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Huge, huge. Because God is extending this relationship between God and Abraham to all of Abraham's descendants. Every single person who has a speck of Abraham's DNA somewhere in their genetic code gets to have a similar one-on-one -on -one relationship with God with one catch. They must be circumcised. God says this, after, as for you, you shall keep my covenant to you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between you, me, and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. And to us, this sounds odd. But again, circumcision, not so odd in the ancient world. It goes back. Um, especially, I would say it was culturally equivalent. It was on par with something like an ear piercing. And so if you'll allow me to be pointed and kind of dive in here for a moment. God is linking his blessing to the reproductive and genetic source, the place where life is consummated. We might say that God is asking Abraham and the men to follow to set apart and consecrate that part of you which is responsible for your future and your family. And do this. Consecrate your future to me. Do this, and I will be in relationship with you, Abram, Abraham, and all of your offspring. God is zeroing in to say, it's not like an ear piercing as if God wants us to be um, sort of ever listening to him. It's not like a tattoo where God wants us to always have an outward expression from him. It's an expression of setting aside the future. Um, that the future, the time ahead, is the thing which God says, consecrate that and give it to me. And um, Abram's, Abram's response is telling here, because in our day and age, 
we might be tempted to say something like, hey, God, um, can we maybe like lay off on the circumcision? Like, ear piercings are great. Uh, I can go get that at the mall, you know? Um, but in his day and age, um, that's not Abraham's, re- like, that's not his objection. Abraham's like, okay, sure, circumcision. Simple enough. Things like that happen. His objection is to say, you think we're going to have kids at age 100? <laughs> like, he says to God, look, this boat is passed. We took care of this already. I have a son. His name is Ishmael. And you think that my wife at age 99 and I at age 99 are going to be able to have children? Are you kidding me? Really? God says, no, I'm not kidding you. Ishmael is going to be fine. Don't worry. I'm going to bless the heck out of him too. But he is not the one to carry the covenant. He was not the child I promised you. I will establish my covenant with Isaac. By the way, you're going to have a son, and his name's going to be Isaac. <laughs> and Sarah will bear him to you next year. For 24 years, Abram has been trusting and waiting for God to give him a child. He thought he had accomplished that through Ishmael. But as we've already established, Ishmael is a product not of sort of Abraham and Sarah's faith in God, but of their lack of faith in God. And so God says, you know, I'm going to bless him, I'm going to take care of him, but that wasn't the plan. The plan is through your and Sarah's son. The not yet, right? One of the great frustrations that Abram had with God is like, God, you're, you're, you're going to do this. You keep saying you're going to do this, but when? When are you going to do it? And God keeps saying, not yet, not yet, not yet. But now God says, not, not yet. He says, next year. Next year. It's a remarkable change. Because God has given Abram a deadline. One year from today, you will have a child, Sarah. And so God, in preparation for this future, has Abram set aside the part of his body that produces the future. And by proxy, God has all of Abraham's household do the same, because God is creating a community of people that he will want to work with in the long term, that are concerned with dedicating the future to God himself the future of their, their, their people, the future of their um, sort of livelihood, the future of their families. God is saying, dedicate those to me and I will be your God and you will be my people. It's not unreasonable to say that the people of the circumcision, the people of Israel, are the people who have trusted their future into the hands of God. Um, so tattoos, circumcisions, these are just two of the ways that human beings can identify as part of a group. That's a big deal because, again, the promise that God makes to Abraham is not just a promise to everyone. It's a promise specifically to the people who share Abraham's DNA. It's a promise to a particular group. And so there's got to be some way of identifying who's in the group and who's out of the group, right? We have to figure out who's going to claim the promises and say, these are for me. Um, and who is going to um, say, no, thank you, I'd like to strike out on my own. When it comes to group identities like this, you know, we're something, this is really core about the human, uh, the human existence, the human uh, experience. We all have group identifiers that we have, even if they're not so strong and, and permanent and outward looking as a tattoo or circumcision. Uh, this is middle school in a nutshell, right? Because um, all the clothes that all the middle schoolers wear, all the fashion styles that they're experimenting with, these are signifiers of ways that they, uh, they think about community and what groups they are a part of. Because the different groups have different clothes. 
They're symbolizing and saying, this is the group that I'm a part of because I wear this. I wear the camo because I'm a hunter and I go and I'm going to skip school the whole week of deer hunting season. Or uh, I'm the prep and, and I can only, you can't be like me because I have the expensive clothes. Or I have the cool new sports jersey or I have the shirt with the video game character on it. Um, the same goes for things like, it's, it, this is why we do tattoos and piercings and dye our hair different colors. Because, you know, generally speaking, the more unique tattoos and, pers- uh, and, and piercings that a person has, the more unique options they use to dye their hair color. What they're signifying to the world is a distance from that dominant culture. They say things like, I've got a tattoo, so I'm, I'm, you know, I've got like, you know, one of my ankles. So I'm, I'm a little bit far off, but I'm, I'm not so far off, but I'm not the same as everyone else. And someone who's got, you know, this sort of flaming purple striped hair is saying, I'm nothing like the dominant culture. I'm different. I'm not part of that circle. Part of a different circle of people who are perhaps more true, more cutting edge. Um, Think of a gang, right? Think of a biker gang. I recently learned about the Hells Angels, right? The the infamous biker gang. Um, They had a secret code for their tattoos. And uh, members of the Hells Angels, they have a tattoo that reads 1%. So, you know, they talk about prison tattoos. You go into prison, you see someone with a, I hope you don't go to prison, uh, but you see someone with a 1% tattoo on their, on their peck or their shoulder. What does 1% mean? Well, there's this apocryphal story about um, the American Motorcycle Association trying to distance itself from all the, the Hells Angels and the mean, rough and rowdy biker gangs. And they said, hey, listen, um, 99% of the people who ride motorcycles are fine, law-abiding people, but there's just this 1% that gives us a bad name. So what do the bikers do? You get 1% tattooed on their body, or patches, 1% patches sewn on their vest, because they want to identify with the powerful, bad bikers. The Hell's Angels. My favorite example of this is the absurdity of the Sam's Club membership card. Any Sam's Club members here? I know there's, all right, we, I see a couple of very demure hands going up. I'm not gonna embarrass you. I, but but um, I grew up in a family of um, six. I was one, uh, one of four children. And then my grandfather moved in with us. So like we were a family of seven. So it was like, we had to shop at Sam's Club because that's the only place where you can get like, you know, five gallon buckets of laundry detergent and um, two gallon jugs of barbecue sauce. And some families need these things. And uh, they sell everything in bulk at the Sam's Club. And, and um, the trick is you have to pay for a membership to have access to buying in bulk, right? Um, that you cannot even walk in there um, without having, you either have to get a membership or they actually charge you like a 10%, I had to Google this to make sure I got it right, they'll charge you a 10% upcharge on whatever you buy unless you have a Sam's Club membership. Um, and, and it's genius, right? Because they have the insiders and the outsiders and if you pay for the membership to shop there, the psychology is brilliant because it's the sunk cost uh, part of your brain where it's like, well, I spent $45 on a membership so I guess I better put it to good use and shop at the Sam's Club. But then you go home with like a 10-pound bucket of salt and an 80-pack bottle of water and a jug of Italian seasoning as big as your arm and like eight pounds of tater tots, you know? Um, But you have to be a member of the club. You can't even buy things if you're not a member of the club. And to get into the Sam's Club, you have to show them your ID. And to check out, at the checkout counter, you have to show them your ID. In my own wallet, I have a Sheets card. Entitles me to three cents off a gallon of gas. I have a John Eagle card. Entitles me to discounts when I get gas at the get-go. I'm a member of various uh, rewards programs. I have a driver's license that identifies me as a resident. 
of Pennsylvania and a resident of the United States of America. And in the ancient world, the descendants of Abraham, through his yet-to-be-born child Isaac, um, they will use the right of circumcision to claim their membership into the ranks of God's people. It's as visceral as any body piercing, it's more permanent than a Sam's Club membership, and it's as long-lasting as a tattoo. This is going to present a problem, you see. It's going to present a problem for the people of Israel. Because later on in the Old Testament, there will be a lot of people running around with their ancient identification card of being a member of Israel who actually reject God as their God, who reject membership into the nation and family that they were born into. Occasionally, we're going to find... Actually, the opposite problem is true, too. Some people are going to carry the membership card, but do everything that you're not supposed to do as a member of Israel. And then there will be some people, we can read about them in the Old Testament, who actually go out of their way to do everything that you're supposed to do as a person uh, who is a member of the people of Israel. You call them God-fearers, people who actually love and care deeply about the God of Israel, who aren't circumcised, who don't engage. And so we're going to have a problem later on where this, this membership ID card that people have, it's not enough. It's not going to be enough. Because you're going to have people who have the ID card of ancient Israel who um, act like they're pagans, and then you're going to have pagans who don't have the ID card who act like members of Israel. And so just because someone has the membership ID of God's people, that doesn't mean they're really part of the club. And throughout the history of Israel, God is going to continually remind his people that the, the blessings that come with circumcision are not linked because you got circumcised. They're linked because there's a, theoretically a heart behind the practice that first has connected with God, and circumcision is an outflow. Throughout the entire Old Testament, you can read it in the book of Deuteronomy, four books after this, God is going to say to people, listen, the important thing, yes, circumcise all your adult males, but everybody, man, woman, and child, circumcise your hearts. And then towards the end of the Old Testament, that's the phrase that Jeremiah, the great prophet, is going to use, one of the last voices of the people of Israel before they are kicked out of this nation and sent into to exile, he's going to say the same thing. He's going to tell people, circumcise your hearts. That is the real membership in the people of God. Not the outward act of a little body modification, but the heart which actually moves forward. This is why God does the order like this. Back in Genesis 15, what does God say um, about Abram's faith? Um, God says, Abraham's faith, he trusted God's promises, and so God counted it to him as righteousness. Only after that piece of the puzzle is firmly established and put in place does God follow up with an with a outward sign of an inward faith. We as Christians, friends, we are no longer required uh, to, do, and to undergo the practice of circumcision as a, rela- as a way of relating to God. We do not circumcise our males. If we do, it's not out of obedience to Scripture, but through some sort of cultural or health-based practice. But that doesn't mean you haven't been in a church before where there is some sort of membership-esque commitment uh, for you to join. Maybe you've been in a church that has you know, these membership-esque requirements, like um, it's not a tattoo or circumcision, but maybe it's something like throwing all of your secular music CDs in the garbage. Or maybe it's something like, um, uh, you know, giving up tobacco or gambling or dancing. Maybe membership requirement in the church that you are part of was to vote for a particular political party. 
Um, I think it's remarkable, in fact, the infamous revivalist preacher, Charles Finney, whose ministry I don't know what to make of, but I, 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 I get it, but I also, it's not my thing. Um, don't, don't hear this as an, as an endorsement, but his ministry took place about 30 years before um, the uh, American Civil War. And I've, again, I've got qualms with the guy, because he's the guy who invented like the hot seat, you know, the big revivalist tent meetings, and you shine the lights down on people at the front row, and you know, you, you whip everyone up into a frenzy and try to get people to make very emotional uh, commitments to God. Like that was his deal. He was the one who really pioneered that expression of American religion. And one thing that he would do was that after their religious conversion, they would say, okay, I want to come to know Jesus, and maybe he'd baptize them there on the spot. But then he'd hand them a petition. And the petition would be, I oppose slavery in the United States. And he said, sign this, you're a Christian now. And I'm like, I don't know what to think about that. Because on the one hand, yes, of course, we want to get rid of slavery. But on the other hand, isn't that something a little bit further than what faith requires? But it could be anything, right? It doesn't just have to be that. Churches can use unspoken dress codes. Um, maybe we could use Christianese language and think the rest of the world actually understands words like sanctification or incarnation or something like that. Or maybe we could even use something um, like skin color to communicate who can be a member and who can't be a member of our church. What's remarkable is that the New Testament uh, says this, that the Christian equivalent of circumcision is not a tattoo, it's not a dress code, it's not an album-burning party, or political petition. It's not even the Coptic Christian wrist symbol. The Christian equivalent, the replacement of circumcision, is baptism. Baptism. Because God is going to shift strategies. God shifts gears, as it were, after Jesus' death and resurrection. The plan God had for Israel was to keep Abraham's people separate, unique, different from the rest of the world, so that they could be a blessing and show the world that there was another way to live was infinitely better, and it was directly related to their relationship with God. It didn't always work out that way. And so Jesus will say in his ministry that, look, for a season, the weed and the weeds are going to grow together in the acreage of God's kingdom, and we will sort them out and separate them later. We are not going to be as concerned with who is in and who is out. We'll let God sort that and let the growth happen without this idea of having the external symbol like circumcision to make things happen. So we have baptism instead. And the, the great sort of grace and frustration about baptism is that it is visible, but it is only temporarily so. It doesn't have the same visual permanence as a tattoo. It doesn't have the visceral bloodiness of a body modification. Um, you don't have to renew it every year like a Sam's Club membership card. Um, if we did have some sort of visual sign of membership as the people of Israel, I mean, it wouldn't matter much anyway, because in the same way that the people of Israel uh, did not have a uniform expression of their faith, people who, if we all just had to wear WWJD bracelets to church, people would wear them. But that doesn't mean their hearts would be truly transformed. Because in the same way, there are plenty of people who got circumcised, who didn't keep God's word in the Old Testament. There are plenty in the New Testament in the era of the church who are baptized also don't keep God's word, too. So what is the good news in our text today? What is the gospel? The good news is that because we don't have an outward sign of membership that exists in a permanent state, everyone and anyone is welcome to join. There is no dress code. There is no membership card. There is no annual fee. There is blood. 
there is sacrifice, there is the mutilation of the body, but it's not our body, it's not our sacrifice, it's not our blood. It's Jesus Christ's. Anyone who wants to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is welcome in our midst. Anyone who believes, no matter how imperfect that belief manifests itself, in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting, and everything else we say in the creed, they are indeed members of the club. The Christian faith is so outward-focused and welcoming, the Christian faith is so open and receiving, that one evangelist called the church the only organization on the planet that exists for those who are not its members. So what is the good news today in our reading? God gives Abraham and his family a tangible, visible, one-time routine they can accomplish to know for certain that they are members of God's people. It's the good news for us. We, friends, have a tangible, visible, one-time routine we can accomplish to know for certain we are members of God's people. Some of us may have been baptized as babies. Others were baptized as youth or adults. Some of us remember our baptism. Some of us don't. But the gift of God this morning is that we have a tangible, physical expression of God's love for us that we can cling to when life is hard or faith gets weak. Friends, in baptism, good news is that we have tangibly felt and experienced the promises of God to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Feel it. Oh, I got the feeling when I woke, I feel it. Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.